But yeah, mom was calling me probably to see how the holidays went. But how'd it go? I ignored it. Uh, holidays are kind of crazy. We were at Andrew's family's house. Um, and it's always interesting looking at someone else's family's dysfunction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's I a bet. certain level of like, I'm better than you because my dysfunction's not that way. Yeah. But it's just because I'm nose blind to, to our own dysfunction. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you think your family holiday dysfunction is? At my house? Yeah. Someone comes in and they're like, yeah. Um, we buy too much stuff. That's my opinion. Leah, Leah really Just in general. Yeah, I th- Leah really wants the kids to have a really great time, and which I appreciate, right? Um, but for me, it's too much stuff. She would disagree. I'm gonna need you to pick a. You're gonna need to pick a different one because that's the same as saying what's your biggest weakness, and it's that you work too hard or you care too much. <laughs> why on earth? <laughs> why are you saying that? No. It- i i think it's it is it's i i give my kids too much i'm too kind to them listen i I think (laughs) i think we're materialistic that's what i'm saying oh okay all right what do you think our family's dysfunction is our home family our just pick one there's a lot of options yeah um i don't know like what are you thinking i would say I don't know. I guess to me, I'm nose blind to it. I think everything we do is normal. Exactly. I'm trying to think of what people would find odd about it. There's nothing that they would find odd about it because everything is perfect. Well, I guess that might be true. Let me think about this, though. There's got to be at least one thing that we can say. Oh, I'm sure there is. I think. No, I can't think of anything. I'll ask Andrew. He can always give me inspiration on the dysfunction of our family. Because there's been like a lot of things. I'm like. (laughs) So one of like the dysfunctions that I got from our home family that had to be retrained out of me was just like leaving things like a trail of things. Oh, my gosh. And I know you have this as well. And I believe so does Chrissy. We all have it. And for the longest time, Andrew was just like, I don't know why Candace does this. She just like doesn't pick up after herself. It's the craziest thing. You just see like a trail of everywhere I've been. And I'll do like a big, I'll do a big pickup after like a couple days. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll yeah. mess, 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 yeah. mess, mess. And then I'll do a clean. And then it starts over. Uh huh. And Andrew's like, just do it as you go. And then when he went to visit mom and dad, he realized the reason why is because mom is like the fairy duster (laughs) and everything you do, you put down a cup. Andrew will be like, I'm not even done with my cup and she's washing it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you just kind of like, you're like, oh, my, my trash just disappears. I'm not a messy person at all, but it's just. (laughs) Leah hates this about me. Hates this. I know. One of her things is like when I get home that I explode. Suddenly everything I brought in with me is everywhere. Yeah. My shirt's gone. Right. Like I've changed into soft shorts. My shoes are there. My bag, like 
She's like, you come home and you explode. Yeah. That's so I know. Funny. I I used to do that too. And Andrew, he he maybe he has fallen down. So this podcast I listen to, they talk about in a relationship. Uh-huh. A lot of times one person will be what they call a disgusting. <laughs> which is like which is like the sloppy person or the person who like leaves stuff or the person who's not wiping up behind them. And I'm definitely a disgusting. And I think I have pulled Andrew down into the slop with me a little bit. Okay. Because he started leaving stuff around and then it started annoying me, which, you know, it has to be bad if I'm a disgusting and it's bothering me. So what I started doing, cause he would always throw his shirts when he got off work in like the same spot. So then I would put, laundry baskets anywhere the shirts would fall so that when he <laughs> threw it off <laughs> so we just have these laundry baskets all around the house in like a variety of locations that don't make any sense but it's because like when he would come home he would just throw it off and it would land in there and I'd be like perfect that's so funny now that but, we yeah I was gonna say then you have to go on an easter hunt to find all of your uh, laundry baskets and 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 then it's like there's been a laundry basket. He's like, "Where's this shirt I really like?" Well, this laundry basket's in a weird corner, and we haven't found it for you know two months. Exactly. Well, luckily now that we both work from home, there's not the coming home and needing to immediately get undressed. You're already undressed. You're already <laughs> in your pajamas. <laughs> so it it has eliminated that entire issue in the relationship. So it's really been very positive. That's funny. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, so did your kids have a good Christmas? My kids had a great Christmas. Leah makes sure that the Christmases are super magical. Um, oh, that's yeah. Nice. She she works very hard at that, and she's amazing at that. And so my kids had a really great Christmas. One of Ben's presents was he got a ball python because Sky has a ball python, which is uh, for the oh, listeners. like an actual snake. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, so Sky, his cousin, Jordan's daughter, uh, has a ball python and he was very excited to get it. And so we got it and the ball python, we didn't get it on Christmas day. We kind of got him like, we had a tank that Leah got from somebody and I did not realize how much more equipment we needed. And Uh, right now we're still trying to get the tank, um, to heat up to the right temperature. Because it's currently mm-hmm. not getting as hot as it should be. Okay. Well, but it's very cold where you are, I'm sure. It is, and the tank is located in the basement where and it's and it's unfinished, right? So, like, it's pretty cold down there. Mm-hmm. Which isn't horrible for warm-blooded creatures, right? But... yeah. So we're we're still trying to figure out how we need to set up the room slash mm-hmm. what are all the different heating elements we need to get. I think that the light mm-hmm. that we got that's on top of it is probably not going hot enough. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah. I, th- I think we need yeah. a hotter you light. A brighter bulb or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then um we got two we had one, but then we bought another under the tank heater it's basically like a heat pad oh that you that yeah. has a sticky side and it just tapes to under the tank 
-hmm. So the the snake can get to the right temperature if it just kind of burrows a little into the mm -hmm. the the floor, but it's the ambient temperature in the tank is still too low. Mm -hmm. If that I makes see. sense. Yeah. So Andrew runs very cold, and I run very hot. Like at night, if I try to cuddle or anything, he's like, "You're like molten lava," and oh, he's like, yeah. "I instantly." Leah says sweating. the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, he calls me the heat rock. And so whenever it's cold out, now it's my time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> and no matter how big our bed is, somehow he falls into like my gravitational pull and he's like <laughs> on top of me sucking up all my heat. <laughs> but during the summer, can't be bothered. He's like, get away from me. So I, he's like a little snake and I'm like his little heat rock. And then the other thing I was thinking about is that when Andrew and I first got together, he had a pet tarantula. Okay. Because one of his roommates had gotten a ball python and he hates snakes, but that roommate hated uh, spiders. So Andrew said, <laughs> if your snake gets out, I'm releasing the spider. <laughs> That's his kill switch. <laughs> so we had just started dating and he's like, do you want to hold my tarantula? And the answer was certainly not. But I was like in the phase of trying to impress. And I was like, sure, I would love to. So I held it and I was like, okay, time to put it back. <laughs> and then we did. And I mean, luckily for me, Schmipple was the tarantula she didn't live long because andrew and his roommates they didn't heat or cool their house because it was too expensive and got really cold and she died oh my gosh <laughs> i was gonna say what happened to the tarantula but now now i know now you what, know she what, what she happened gone. to the python I'm sure I'm that roommate eventually moved out. He was very irresponsible. I'm sure that Python is dead. They live a long time. So. Well, if you take care of them. Yeah, even if you don't take care of them, I mean, they can still die. Like Andrew got his tarantula killed, but um, you can, they can live, I guess, like 30, 40 years in captivity in like 10 yeah. to 15 years outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we we really should actually start the the content of the podcast. But um, last night we went to Denver Zoo to they mm -hmm. they put a bunch of Christmas lights up. I was like, um, we drove ninety minutes to uh, look at electricity, um, and there was electricity where we left. Uh, now there oh. happens to be different kinds of electricity, right? It's it's being formatted in a different way at Denver Zoo. Right. But we, we're still driving to look at electricity. And anyways, so I'm at the zoo and I, I run into we haven't we, we don't regularly go to the Denver Zoo because it's far away. But when we lived in yeah. St. Louis, we went to the zoo all the time. One, because it was free. And two, um, okay. because it was nearby. When we lived in Omaha, we went to the zoo all the time. Because we had a year pass that someone had gifted us. And the Omaha Zoo is one of the best zoos in the entire world. Um, it is, when people talk about Omaha, they're like, have you been to the Omaha Zoo? It is it is Omaha's Disneyland. 
Um, I didn't know people thing... talked about Omaha. Listen, you probably aren't around people. <laughs> East Coast elite in Atlanta. <laughs> but Nebraska is a flyover state. <laughs> and Omaha yeah. has two things going for it. One, it has um, the College World Series. So if you're into college baseball, okay. there you go. Yep. And two, the mm-hmm. Omaha Zoo. Mm. And I think. Okay, so now you've gone to the Colorado Zoo and you have been, it sounds like, to the creme de la creme of the zoos. Oh, yeah. There's no zoo that compares to the, I haven't been to another zoo that compares to the Omaha Zoo. Um, it is, It is truly incredibly good and also much better than every other zoo I've been to. So anyways, we're at the Denver Zoo and I haven't thought about zoos in like five years because I haven't been to a zoo in five years. Um, Right. But I'm there and I'm thinking, you always think this, or at least I always think this, is this really right? Like what we're doing to these animals. And then I was there and I was just like, I just felt terrible for all of the creatures because it's like, you know, they have to show off during the day, but now they're getting pimped mm-hmm. out at night. And like, I is know. that even fair? Is that even fair? No, no it's not. No. And I just, I just felt bad for all of them. And I was like, if I cared enough, I would start an organization or join an organization to destroy all zoos or at least all zoos that aren't yeah. as good as the Omaha Zoo. That can be the zoo yeah. that exists, right? Like you have to be at that level. Yeah. Well, so a a lot of, oh, go for it. Sorry. I was just the last thing is like, I was like, and what we're doing with this ball python is like a crappy zoo. I guess maybe it's better because it's kind of the worst. Yeah. It probably has a tank as big as what it would have in a zoo. Right. Oh, that's true. Right. Like the zoo doesn't give you these huge giant aquariums for snakes or uh, terrariums. That's true. Um, and it doesn't have, you know, a hundred thousand people looking at it. So right. maybe I'm that's sure that better. Reduces its anxiety. Yeah. Right. But yeah. But still, maybe we're only a step above. Well, I mean, to extrapolate that a step further, my cats are indoor cats. So they're effectively in a very large tank. Yes. And I think about that too. Um you know, and I would love to let them go outside, but I would also hate for them to die. So I don't know. Is it selfish of me to keep them in? I I don't think I think your your cats are so domesticated that they are now in their natural habitat. My cats have turned into babies. That's true. Right? <laughs> like King, like... he's he's on the verge of needing to be burped after his dinner. <laughs> like... <laughs> In the mornings, he he calls for me to pick him up so that I can hold him so he can look out the window oh at a higher gosh. vantage point. Yeah. Oh my god! It, it, like he's like, I'm not going to the kitty litter box anymore. That's too much effort. I now wear yeah. diapers. He, yeah. He's like, you carry me. You carry me. <laughs> you wipe. Well, okay. So all right, I keep, I keep we keep saying we're going to get into this, but we don't. I used to have the litter box in my office for a short time, and every morning. After I fed the cats breakfast, which was in my office, I would turn on my computer and I'd start working and King would walk into his litter box and he would drop a huge poop in it. Oh my gosh. And he wouldn't cover it. 
And then he would walk out of it and he'd look at me and wait for me to scoop it. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, the power dynamics, the mind games. And it was every morning, every morning. And finally, it was like, let's just get this out of your office. This is crazy. And so then we did. So, you know, but King does, he rules this house with an iron fist and the threat of a, a pee outside of the box. So Andrew and I are on our best behavior. Oh, I know Jinx hates it okay. when we come over. Um, So in, we, we were just talking about Christmas and in the Chronicles of Narnia, Christmas finally comes to the land that is always winter and never Christmas. Yes, yes. Great segue. But I do want to do just a quick touch on Bookalytics. Not a lot's been happening because we have not been publishing a whole lot, nor have we been doing it on a very good schedule. Holidays are crazy, but we do have a new listener in Phoenix, Arizona. So I wanted to say hi. Welcome. Sweet. And last time, Sam, we did not do the intro to Bookalicious. So we know I that remember now. that. Yeah. You did a good job yeah, adding had, it to the to the front end. Yeah, I did have to add it in post, but we're going to do it for real now. So welcome to Bookalicious, a podcast where one sister, occasionally the other, and sometimes her brother talk about books. I'm Candace. I'm Sam. And today we are going to get into part two of The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And we are picking up on chapter six i like my kindle for reading i do not like it for podcasting no it's very hard like navigating stuff you should be using the desktop app or the online app oh they have that yes wow okay all right so we're in chapter six into the forest so we left off last week with the pevensey children going into the wardrobe and between five to six, they go from the wardrobe into Narnia. Yes. So six, we pick up the Pevensey children. They hear Mrs. McCready leave mm -hmm. the room. So they try to exit the wardrobe, but turns out they're in Narnia. Yep. Edmund accidentally reveals he's been in Narnia before and displays that he is not the cleverest boy there ever was, which the white witch had pumped him up to be in the previous chapter. They also take some uh, very expensive fur coats. And then have a conversation about whether or not it's stealing. Yes, they do logic their way into saying that they've never left the wardrobe. So it is perfectly fine that they are taking <laughs> these fur coats. <laughs> Using some children logic, which, you know what, fine. So Edmund reveals he's been in Narnia before. The kids are like, God, Edmund, you suck. And he's like, Ugh, whatever. Then Lucy corrals them and says, let's go check on Mr. Tumnus for the third time and see if all of her visits prior had gotten him killed. And as anyone could have guessed, his home had been ransacked and Mr. Tumnus had been captured by the White Witch. With a note saying, captured by the White Witch. Head of the secret police. By the secret police, yep. Mm -hmm. And so the, the three kids, besides Edmund, Lucy, Peter, and Susan, they're like, we need to go get Mr. Tumnus. But Edmund can only think about Turkish delights. And he's irritated that they're wasting time going to look for Mr. Tumnus and not turning in his siblings over to the White Witch. And so he's getting irritated. 
And Susan makes a reasonable suggestion of going home and saying, forget about Mr. Tumnus. We don't even know him. But instead, the siblings follow a bird that they believe is showing them the way. So they see a random bird in a forest, which seems like a normal thing to see. But they're convinced this bird is telling them something. And they also decide that because birds are birds, it must be a good bird and not an evil spy taken to the White Witch. So they follow the bird into the forest. Edmund makes a reasonable suggestion that following the bird will get them lost and they can't guarantee that Mr. Tumnus is even on the right side. And Peter says that's a really good point, but immediately forgets about it and continues following the bird. And that is chapter six. So this is this shows the trust that Lucy has amongst Peter and Susan and how much it's increased now that they're actually in Narnia and they realize, Mm -hmm. oh, she's not a liar and she's not crazy. She's been telling the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as Edmund's making really great logical points, uh, he has no trust among his older siblings because he's a liar and also a bit of a dink. Right. He's just he's not a great person. Yes. So I so this is the line that um, I kind of alluded to in that, that summary. But Edmund says about the bird, we're following a guide we know nothing about. How do we know which side that bird is on? Why shouldn't it be leading us into a trap? Peter, that's a nasty idea. Still, a robin, you know. They're good birds in all stories I've ever read. I'm sure a robin wouldn't be on the wrong side. So my question to you is, is C.S. Lewis suggesting that we should stereotype people based on what we think about them to determine if they're good or bad? Absolutely. Uh, And maybe not people, (laughs) but definitely creatures. Um, C.S. Lewis has... very strong kind of like classical definitions of what is a good and a bad creature. Right. So if it was Mm -hmm. a crow, that crow is going to be evil. Right. And if it is um, maybe a Robin or, or another kind of more noble bird, he's definitely playing Mm -hmm. both into now you could call them stereotypes or you can call them, you know, fantasy archetypal uh, situations, right? Mm-hmm. He he is not subverting well, I... the classic fantasy of what creatures are good and bad. Okay, so I think that's fine, but I'm wondering if because this was written during World War II. Uh, well, it was, it was written after World War II. It was published after World War II. It was written in 1950. Right. But you're in like that same kind of mindset where there was like a lot of, I don't know if it's considered racism against Jewish people or is that discrimination? So, well, I think people would call it racism. But prejudice. Yeah, there's a lot. Well, even there's definitely like um, a connection of the white witch to fascism because they would have just fought the fascists in the Nazis. Um, five years earlier, the war ends in what 45, I think. And, and so the secret police, right. Is a very fascist kind of also, if you're leaving a note that says secret police, how secret are you? (laughs) (laughs) They're just doing some propaganda. They're just letting you know, Hey, we did this. You don't know where we are. You'll never see us, but we're around. That's right. 
Um, so, which is crazy that there's a secret police, but uh, but yeah, so there's definitely like a connection of the White Witch to to fascism and all that is evil. And I think if you were somebody reading this in Britain in 1950, you would immediately see that connection to mm-hmm. um, how the Nazis operated. I guess I'm just surprised that C.S. Lewis would write about so much prejudice and like verifying the prejudice after that huge, huge thing that happened in World War II. But it feels like the the pretense that you would want to have at that time would be of acceptance and trying to, you know, be kind to everyone and kind of be in that sort of light. No, well, I I disagree, especially because you're anthropomorphizing the bird. It's a bird, mm-hmm. right? It's a creature. Well, they go on and they do it to uh, dwarves, yes, lions, sentient yes. creatures, creatures yes. that are just as yes cognizant talking, as people, right? <clears throat> the talking, right? Mm-hmm. But again, you're anthropomorphizing, right? I what I what I'm saying is I think that. C.S. Lewis is playing within the genre of fantasy, especially mm. fantasy as it has been written up until that point. Right. Like mm. you could say that modern fantasy begins with Tolkien. Um, mm-hmm. Especially kind of the huge creativity that we've seen in the last 70 years since this book was written. But if you're, if you're talking mm-hmm. classic, classic fantasy tropes, I don't think, I don't think you have to see this as, um, um, Lewis holding up this idea that you can typecast people based on who they are. Though, based on his age and the time in which it was written, I don't know if that would actually entirely be wrong. Right? Like, what do you mean? So, I'm saying that what I'm not saying is that C.S. Lewis is not prejudiced. He very well may be prejudiced. Oh. I don't think that this is a great example of him being prejudiced. There's a different example that people bring up of the Chronicles of Narnia about another country that exists uh, essentially as like a Middle East country um, with Mm. these people called Colormen. And people are like, that's super racist. And yeah, Uh, it doesn't doesn't look great on this side, right? But I think that's a much mm -hmm. better example of C.S. Lewis allowing the prejudice of his times to fill in. I don't think this particular, especially with all the creatures, because there's almost like this, uh, not platonic ideal, but there's this natural sorting of good and evil creatures. And evil Mm -hmm. creatures, hags, witches, werewolves, minotaurs, they side with the witch. Then you have Mm -hmm. mostly evil giants, but sometimes you have a good giant, right? The good, gentle giant. Um, And then sometimes you have a good creature that's going towards the bad side, but they can be redeemed. Mm -hmm. But he definitely follows a natural inclination, right? Right. And it kind of seems like there is a delineation between the humans versus the creatures, where even though the creatures who for all intents and purposes are the same as a human in the sense that they're sentient they have thought 
and all the ways that matter. But yeah. it seems like the humans are considered better. Yes. But this, I think, goes back to Lewis's theology, right? So mm -hmm. here's a different, if we take a sidestep from this, what mm -hmm. makes a human human, right? And then how do you differentiate right. that from anything else? So if you say what makes a human human is rational thought, then mm -hmm. what do you do with a robot or an AI that achieves a level of rational thought or even let's say super rational thought right they they exceed mm -hmm. the capacity for what it for what the average human can do and then mm -hmm. if you have a human that doesn't have the ability of having rational thought is it no longer human so mm -hmm. if you have some kind of debilitating illness you're in a coma injury, Right. Or or you have some kind yeah. of chronic condition, uh, genetic mutation. Right. Like you, yeah. you don't get to count. And going back to now that we've talked about Nazis. Right. Like the whole point is. Right. Y'all are subhuman. You're not as human right. human as the rest of us. Um, and right. we can classify you as subhuman. So um, I don't think that rational thought in, or intelligence is a good way of defining humanity. Um, now, theologically, I would say that humans are human um, in, in this special sense because God has declared it so, right? That humans were right. made in his image. Um, and I think that for Lewis, now I'm reading into this, right? Mm -hmm. But this seems to be pretty... Um, normal for Narnia that in the beginning in the magician's nephew, right? Aslan made everything and he set these two humans to be the first king and queen over that creation, right? Um, mm -hmm. Reiterating the role that Adam and Eve had and even mm -hmm. calling them sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? Is evoking the image of God. And so, yeah. Now I don't know if Lewis would actually say it like this, but my answer to right, I've already kind of said it. But um, what makes humans human is that God declares them to be, mm -hmm. and that um, God would take the form of a human. This is a huge mm. point for Lewis: is that God has redeemed humanity by taking the form of humanity. Mm. right and so um i think probably i don't know if we necessarily need to read all of that into kind of this but i do think it's playing in the background of the role yeah. of the animals and the humans and that the humans are a step above the animals um mm -hmm. not because they're better in any particular way you could say that the beavers are more capable in some ways or that the lions are stronger right or you know mm -hmm. the the pegasus can fly um mm -hmm. but but that not because they're better but because they are declared to be mm. Anyways, there you go and yeah and it it's interesting that you bring that up and without us getting too far off topic chrissy wrote her like thesis paper at baylor and it was effectively talking 
about how the idea that humans are better than animals and other things on earth, like they're the most important, mm-hmm. can have unintended consequences of, you know, ravaging a forest, killing yes. a species, because totally. doing things you're like, we need to keep people alive. So we're gonna, you know, just destroy everything else. Yes. And how if you believe that and it kind of goes unchecked, it can have some really damaging consequences very yes. quickly. This is the difference between believing that you can please God on your own versus receiving God's love as grace. So that if mm-hmm. you say, I have done nothing in myself that deserves God's grace, and yet he gives it to me, not because of what I've done, but because of what he says, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus I need to live my life in such a way that um, keeps God's favor. I need to do these kinds of different things in my life. I need to sacrifice these sorts of things and keep him appeased, right? I need to keep feeding God good deeds or whatever. Um, this is, mm-hmm. I think, very analogous, where if you say, we as humans aren't better because of some capability of ours, whether it's mm-hmm. rational thought or introspection or um, language that we appreciate as opposed to other animals, right? Or or whatever it is, right? Um if you're not justifying yourself saying, well, this is why humans are better than animals, um, but you take mm-hmm. it simply as grace that God says, hey, you're in charge of the animals, so take care of them. You're in charge mm-hmm. of the earth, so take care of the earth. And right. if you see your place not as, oh, I've earned this, but that God has placed me in this to be a steward over it, to mm-hmm. care for it, I think you're going to come about um, to your solution of, Okay, what do we do in this situation with us and the environment or whatever? And I think you're going to come to a much healthier place. Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree. Oh, okay. Um, so you ready for chapter seven? We meet the beavers? Yes. Okay. So chapter seven, a day with the beavers. And my summary. So once the siblings have followed the bird a good way into the forest, the bird flies off leaving the children stranded in the middle of the wood. And the children are determined to decide who's on the good side versus bad side by looks and species alone. And they see a beaver and they determine that he is on the good side and they go to meet with him. Their intuition pays off and the beaver is on Aslan's side and has big news. Aslan, quote, is on the move. Mr. Beaver brings the children into his home and Mrs. Beaver cooks up a great big meal. I didn't have anything really highlighted here. Um, The first thing, and this is something cool with Kindle, is it tells you if there's a line that's very popularly highlighted. Yes, yes. And so this was one of the most commonly highlighted areas. And so when Mr. Beaver talks about Aslan, it says, At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Yeah. I didn't find that particularly thought-provoking, but a lot of, I guess. (laughs) A lot of other people did. 
So I, I want to talk about the quote in particular, but I do want to talk about that practice of like how much is showing something to be um, very popular creates a self-perpetuating popularity, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. you see, oh, 595 other people thought this was helpful. Well, maybe it yeah. is helpful, right? Like, um, and yeah. you wouldn't have highlighted it on your own outside of that. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes if I'm reading Kindle, because um, I do love highlighting things, I'll highlight anything mm -hmm. I find interesting. And sometimes mm -hmm. I come across the ones that are like super popular and I'm like, I'm not like those people. I'm going to I'm gonna find my own yeah. quote, right? Or I add on to the quote, like I add a line before or a line after to like feel superior yeah. in myself or whatever. Um, to be what like, I, I'm an individual. Yes. So I think a lot of people who are reading Chronicles of Narnia are reading it um, for its allegorical value to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that this is um, a really kind of beautiful way of describing what it would be like for someone to hear the name of Jesus and have different reactions to that name. Right? So if you mm. substitute Jesus for Aslan... I think you're going to get why it's so very popular and I can yeah. see it being quoted in articles or sermons or other books as like a narrative way of describing um, the effect that the name of Jesus can have on people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can definitely see that, that perspective in it. Um, I think this also highlights in addition to the prejudice that I, I'm calling prejudice against animals and creatures. I think mm -hmm. there's also a, a gender stereotyping oh, for that sure. Lewis yeah. really kind of puts, okay, Peter, you're the oldest. So you're going to be brave and strong and you're going to fight. And yes. Susan, you're a girl. So you're going to think about pies and baking yes. and Lucy, you're going to think about the holidays. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and that that kind of theme is going to carry out through the rest of the novella. Yeah. Yes. I mean, as we were talking about the kind of archetypes or stereotypes that he has for the animals, he has the exact same mm -hmm. thing for humanity, right? Yes. Um I don't think it's an accident that he chose a witch, right? Um mm -hmm. you know, um Not I don't think it's an accident that Aslan is a lion. Right. Right. Like as opposed to a rodent. Um, so so I think this it, is all baked into it. Yeah. It feels like and we had talked about this in the last episode um, of kind of using logic to organize your thoughts and how things should go. Mm -hmm. And I think we had talked about that in relation to is Lucy a liar or is she truth telling? Yeah. Yes. And not kind of having that gray. And it yeah. feels like to me reading this book that C.S. Lewis very much wants to organize the world in such a way that he can just have quick heuristics and know yes. this is how I'm supposed to think. Totally. You're this, you go here, you go there. Everything's very organized and yes. you fit in your box and you don't step out of it. And like, yes. that's the way that it should be. <clears throat> it's very Greek. Okay, so anything there? Are you ready for chapter eight? Chapter eight, I have a lot. A lot of um, 
I would just say that just kind of a as another thing, um, I think part of what Lewis is doing is that he's playing within a certain kind of genre. And that and mm-hmm. in that genre, he is not subverting it. And I think so much mm. of what we consider high art today is the subversion of genre, right? Mm-hmm. And that we call it maybe childish or um uh um not high art when you just play within a genre as it is does that make sense Mm -hmm. and so so you're saying don't judge the past based on today's standards i think there's some of that there yes but i also think that recognizing what is lewis actually trying to do versus judge like judge him based on what he's trying to do not on what he doesn't do so Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah which i think is probably a good standard to take to all art because if you you know if i say well well, a movie didn't do this well i'm going to create impossible standards for all movies and never be happy with any of them because right they didn't do the movie i would have done in their situation you know right i can only judge them based on what they did do well i'm going to judge him based on what he did do in chapter eight which is really crazy okay let's do it (laughs) let's do it I was reading this. It's like, I get that it's a kid's book, but you're just like, oh my God, maybe this. Okay. So maybe I'm going to backpedal and be like, maybe the beavers aren't as smart as the people because what Mr. Beaver does in chapter eight is so insane that (laughs) I can't, I almost cannot move past it. Well, I think it's also worthwhile making the point. I thought about this when Mr. Beaver caught the trout. I was like, are there no talking trout? Um, but there is a delineation in Narnia between the talking animals and the non-talking right. animals, right? Yes, yes. And there is like a level of you can use a horse or you can ride a horse um, that isn't talking and that's normal. But to ride right. a horse that does talk requires permission on the basis of the horse kind of deal. Right. Right. And friendship. Anyway, so it's just a. We don't, I don't think we really meet any non-talking animals in this book, but that does come up later in the no. series. Yeah, and I, I can definitely see that, and not to get too sidetracked, but I I can understand where it's hard, even if you're a human in the world, and you're like, like well, I don't want to eat meat because I don't want to ha- cause yeah. harm, and I think yeah. that's very noble, and I wish I had the discipline to do that. I really do, because it does cause me a lot of internal conflict because I'm like, I really like pigs and cows and they're, and they're very smart and they're intelligent and all of these things. But then you, you know, you make a little burger with some bacon on it. I'm like, wow, it's delicious. So it's very hard, (laughs) but at the same time. So what will happen sometimes if you have someone who has strong beliefs like that, they'll try to pass that on to their kids, but we'll talk about their pets. Sure. And so there's been several instances where you have a couple and they're vegetarian or vegan or whatever it is, and they have a cat. And so then they feed the cat only vegetables, but cats are strictly carnivores and they literally cannot absorb nutrition from vegetables. They end up killing their animal because they're like, oh, I don't want to cause any harm. And it's like, well, by doing that, you've now killed an animal. And so you kind of get into this never ending loop 
of what do I do? So we bought Ben's ball python a couple days ago and we had to get food for it. And ball pythons mm -hmm. um, are strictly carnivores and they pretty much live on a whole food diet, which means they eat the whole mm -hmm. food of the creature, Look. right? Which is primarily like <laughs> mice. So we yes. got these frozen mice that are like the size of your thumb and you feed the python once a week and it swallows the entire mouse in one go and then it slowly digests it over that next week right and especially for like mm -hmm. the first two days after it eats you really don't want to mess with it otherwise it could vomit it you gotta really let it because it gets all of its nutrition from breaking down the entire mouse right mm -hmm. but that's just what the creature mm -hmm. is and i think to your point right is that we want to reimagine creatures as being different than what they are, but it's just what they are, right? Which is right. why, you know, we don't charge lions with murder because we recognize mm -hmm. well, this is just a lion and this is just who it is intrinsically, which then gets back to your point of the intrinsic good and evil that Lewis is imbuing into the animals. And he is saying, this is just one more characteristic of who this animal is. Hmm. Without getting too sidetracked, I would yes. say that we do charge a lion for murder because if they kill someone, we kill the lion. Oh, no, I'm we not saying it was the person's fault, but the lion must die also. No, so sorry. No, we charge him. We we execute him if he kills a human. I We don't execute him if he kills uh, a deer or an antelope. Oh, right. Or a zebra. Yes, correct. We say mm -hmm. too bad. So sad. Do you ever like watch those animal documentaries and you see an animal that's oh just God. like gonna die and they're talking about it? And you think, why don't you help the animal? Like, why, like that, that little puppy is gonna die unless he gets some food. Why don't you give him some food? Because they're like, we're documentarians. We're just yeah, documenting. Exactly. We're just documenting this animal starved to death. So I was at my girlfriend's house for like, it was like Christmas a couple years back and they had animal planet on and it was like these walruses, these very large sea animals. And for whatever reason, I guess the walruses were like confused or disoriented and they were jumping off of a cliff. They thought they were going into the water because there was like a cloud or something. Oh my gosh. But then they were just jumping off a cliff and dying. And so each one by one, you're watching these walrus jump off of this cliff. And then the camera's panning, watching the walrus uh -huh. tumble down this cliff to its death, where it just plops on the rest of its friends' dead bodies. And oh you're just gosh. watching this over and over again. And you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, like, but what do you do to stop the walrus? The walrus is much bigger Nothing. than you. Right? Like. Yeah. Anyways. You just watch your tumbles or stuff. Okay, okay, what chapter so eight? Chapter eight. Chapter eight. All right. Summary. Mr. Beaver tells the Pevensey children all the secrets, all the secret details of Aslan's comeback plan, which does not include saving Mr. Tumnus. Peter immediately suggests that all the children go straight to the White Witch's castle, where Mr. Tumnus is, dressed as peddlers, and sneak in and save Mr. Tumnus. 
After every detail of the secret plan has been spilled, Mr. Beaver realizes that Edmund has left the building. This is the part where I'm like, this is insane. Mr. Beaver then says he knew the whole time that Edmund was on the wrong side. And now that Edmund knows the plan, the white witch will sled right over to his dam and torch the whole place. I like that. Why did you say all the details, Mr. Beaver? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I knew the whole time. It's like, (laughs) okay. Now that Edmund's missing, Peter, with another brilliant plan, suggests that the children divide into four separate search parties to walk around the woods that no one's familiar with to go find Edmund. But Mr. Beaver tells the children they only have 20 minutes to pack before the white witch is there and will kill them all. (laughs) And I'm like, Peter has so many bad ideas, number one. Yes. He's quick to action, slow to thought. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, Mr. Beaver going into great detail all the secrets in front of Edmund knowing that he's evil. Only be like, Oh man, that's it. My whole house, everything's getting torched. We got to go now. I I don't know. What what I want to call this bad writing. It could be bad writing, right? Lewis is, you know what I was thinking when I was going over this uh, chapter again today, I was thinking to myself, wow, Lewis immediately gets into Aslan coming. There is no, like, period of time. Like, they are here. They've heard, hey, guys, it's always been winter. It's never been Christmas. And as soon as they get there, Christmas is coming and Aslan's here. Mm -hmm. Right? There is no... This would be, like, act three of another book. And this is still, if you will, act one going into act two. Yes. Yes. Um. So part of me wonders, and I this is an assumption on my part, but how much does um, um, British politeness play into this entire encounter? That you provide oh, the benefit do of doubt to, to someone mm-hmm. and that you might think that, so the beaver thinks that Edmund might be evil, right? But based on mm-hmm. politeness and that he's with these uh, his brothers and sisters... Mr. Beaver does nothing about this. And then uh, I, I'm that feels I, like a stretch. It might be a stretch. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm only bringing it up as a possibility to the societal context of that appears being written that these uh, animals essentially have uh, some level of British etiquette. Okay. If I were to like come up with a, uh a reason why this insane chapter occurred. Yes. yes. I could, I would put that on the board as a possibility. Sure. That's all I'm doing. I'm not, I'm does that. Does that change the insanity of Mr. Beaver? No, no. He's still a loon. Absolutely. <laughs> like, <laughs> like just don't share all the details. Just share a lot of details. Just share some. Yeah. Sprinkle in some wrong details. But he's a beaver, not a fox. He's a beaver. He's not a fox. And a fox would be clever. As you said, can only do a fox would be cunning. Yes, exactly. Beaver is truthful. But 
But C.S. Lewis, he's like, I have a hundred pages to write this story. There is no time <laughs> to exactly send the witch right. down the wrong road. That's exactly right. No time. She needs to know the plan exactly as it needs to be. If we were reading um, uh, Elantris and and Sanderson was writing the line, the witch in the wardrobe, um, we would still be in England at this point and the children wouldn't have gone to the countryside. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they would be measuring the size they would be measuring the wardrobe trying to yeah. figure out who the manufacturer was yeah exactly sending them letters <laughs> <laughs> so we are definitely having some whiplash of totally wow so much detail to can't be bothered oh my gosh fill it in but yeah no there's definitely there's definitely an element of like could there have been a couple more chapters but no one has been considered clever except the witch. Like Peter's not clever. Yes. Edmund's not clever. Like Lucy's not no. even trying to be clever. Right? No. Susan is essentially a bump on the log for all of this. Um, yes. The only clever character we have met is the witch. And it's yes, perhaps. And, and maybe there's something that you could draw from this. But it's it's almost as if like everyone in this book are um are children, and you, yes. the one adult is evil. Yes. Right. Like. I could see that. Making it, a little more sense. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not saying that this is good writing. Um, having, but, you know, what is it? Do sex machina. He's got to get the yeah. witch knowing that they're there. Right. Yep. Yep. He probably couldn't be a spy that snuck in an open window. Exactly. A spy would have made more sense logically, but they would have been seen and reported on. But where Lewis wants to go isn't just the plot point that the witch knows, but he wants to get to the very essential point that Edmund betrays. So, so which which is true, right? And that's where much more of the 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 conflict and ultimately how the rest of the book is essentially being set up comes by what Edmund does here in betraying them. And so mm-hmm. a spy does not accomplish that. Yes. Which fair enough. Um yeah. so this is Edmund being like he heard about Aslan. It makes him sick to his stomach. He's like, I need to go get more of those cocaine-laced Turkish delights. That's right. I got to go. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't even grab a jacket, which we find out in the next, <laughs> in He's the an next idiot. chapter. All these children he, are idiots. Not they have smart. grown up. This is, this is the definition of living in an urban setting. And then suddenly you're out in the wilderness and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, there's, there's not a carriage to take me. From point A to point B, he talks about how there are no roads and how he's yeah. going to put in cinemas and <laughs> all these different things. He's going to oh urbanize Narnia. That felt very relatable to me. I was like, that's what I would be saying too. <laughs> I'd be like, first thing we're doing when I move in here, we're going to blow down this forest. We don't need it. <laughs> we'll put all the animals in a zoo. They'll be so much happier. There, There is this element, and I think that is... This is true of Aslan, but I think you can take it into Narnia, right? In that mm-hmm. Aslan is not domesticated. He is not tame. No. He is not um, 
safe, right? And there's something about Narnia that is not domesticated, tame, or safe, but it is good, right? And and that is a point that explicitly comes out here um, about Aslan. I think you could probably apply it to the wider ge uh, geographic region of Narnia. So I know that this is supposed to be talking about you know, Jesus, and it's an allegory for that. But it, it feels so confusing because one of the lines I highlighted to your point is talking about Aslan. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. And it just that to me, I just can't make sense of it in a way where you're like, oh, this person, they're really good, but they're not safe. Because yeah. to me, someone who's good is someone I feel safe with. Sure. But so like this goes back to like being a king, like if you went before someone who had the power to kill you, right, then they're by definition not safe. And I think it's safe in the sense of like I have the upper hand in this situation. Mm -hmm. Like I am the one who gets to dictate the terms of this encounter and mm -hmm. you don't have that, right? It's He's just, a lion. Yeah, but right but if someone has that power dynamic where it's like at any point they can kill you yeah do you have a true honest relationship with them no it's always going to be at some level superficial because you're afraid that if you don't do what they like then you're going to be punished possibly but maybe not i mean like i think th um that might be true human to human, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you are a slave of a master, you know, what mm -hmm. What true relationship can a slave have with this master and that kind of power dynamic? Um, right. But I think if you had a different situation in which you have two beings of unlikeness, so this is... Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I'm again not saying this is a direct allegory of God, but um, one aspect in in Christian teaching is that we are to fear God, and mm -hmm. this is both a recognition of what God can do, right, mm -hmm. um, and that He is significant on a, a, a an uncomparable level of power as compared to the rest of us, right. But then also a recognition that, oh, if God says that he wants me to do certain things, well, I should take that really seriously, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of fearing and loving. Um, well, maybe it's kind of like with my cat, King. Mm -hmm. I could kill him at any point yeah. if I wanted to. Sure. I'm far bigger. I have tools. Yeah. But he lets me wrap his belly. He lets me stroke under yeah. his chin, which is like their windpipe. And that's a very vulnerable place for an mm -hmm. animal. You know, he lets me basically manhandle him. And yeah. he feels fully confident that I wouldn't hurt him, even though right. I have the ability to do so. Absolutely. I mean, this is essentially, um, ha have you ever watched, do you watch any of the superhero stuff? Uh, here or there. So there's this one animated show on Amazon called uh, Invincible based on a series of comics. And basically it's like a more realistic version of superheroes, right? Mm -hmm. But 
at one point, so there's this alien who comes and he's basically Superman. He's not Superman. It's a completely different thing, right? But he's basically mm-hmm. Superman. And then he has a kid yeah. and his son is half human, half alien. And it turns out that, spoiler here, the dad was sent there to enslave the planet, right? And now he oh, wants his son. Oh, was watching this show. Yeah. And he wants his son to help him. And yeah, and they have this big fight because the son doesn't want to hurt anyone, right? He wants to be a hero, like his dad, mm-hmm. like he thought his dad was. And his dad's like, you know, you know, these people are ants, right? We are gonna live right thousands of years or whatever. They're they're gonna be yeah. dead in a in a couple of decades, right? Like they are essentially ants compared to us. And yeah, and so in this one sense. Um, if you were to think that Superman, I'm I'm taking it out of this show but putting it back on Superman, Superman's not safe, right? Like, right, he could destroy the planet if he set his mind to it. But your mm-hmm. relationship to Superman is that you trust that despite the danger of his power, he is good, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and. Now that we're talking about it, I guess it does make more sense in that way. How C.S. Lewis presented it, it felt very, like, jarring. Sure. It didn't seem like he really elaborated. He could have added, he isn't safe, but he's good. He wouldn't hurt you. I don't know, something. I feel like there could have been an extra line in there for clarification or to make it more clear what he was saying. Sure. But I mean, that's the whole book, right? The whole book is him taking yeah. out lines that could be there mm-hmm. and just immediately yeah. going to the next point. To the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think yep. we uh, can't divorce the fact that Aslan is a lion and lions aren't right. safe. Right? Mm-hmm. They're they're not they're not a kitty cat. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's true. King, my king, he is a kitty cat. Yeah. And he's very safe. His biggest danger, as I mentioned before, is peeing outside the box, which is a great danger to all my furniture. Yes, yes. And my home. Okay, Uh, so we find out that the beaver in his plan, he says, hey, you guys are going to meet him tomorrow at this thing called the stone table. And they're like, what? That's crazy. And then we find out a little bit more about the queen. And you find out that she's no daughter of Eve. This is what it says. She, the queen, comes of your father, Adam's, your father, Adam's first wife. They call her Lilith, and she was one of the jinn. That's what she comes from on one side. And on the other side, she comes of the giants. No, no, there isn't a drop of real human blood in the witch, which is odd to me because it sounds like her dad was Adam. Yeah. And her mom was Lilith. So is Adam not a human? Was he a giant? So this is, I was looking this up the other day, um, so I don't quite remember it. I think this was the first time, around the time when we first recorded this podcast on Mm -hmm. Narnia a couple weeks ago. But from what I understand, Mm -hmm. Lilith is a Jewish, um, I don't want to say myth, right? But kind of like a extra canonical story along with Adam that Adam did have a wife before Eve and that this wife, her name is Lilith and she was Mm. not good 
right? But Eve was good. I'm I'm sure I'm misrepresenting the history of that um, understanding, but mm -hmm. Lewis seems to be borrowing that here, both by referencing Lilith um, and talking about it, but then making her a progeny of Lilith. Um, and then well, also, and I guess she... oh, so sorry. it seems that Lilith wasn't human. Right, she was a jinn, and that Adam's first wife was not another human, but Eve would have been the first human. Right, and I think I was conflating that Lilith was just married to Adam, not yeah. his kid. And I just looked up the quick Wikipedia on Lilith, and, and what you said, based on my two second glance, is about the same. Yeah, I always thought of Lilith as a demon from the show uh, Sabrina. Oh, because they, the Sabrina, the teenage witch, they like uh -huh. revamped it and kind of made it like a, a dark miniseries on Netflix or something. Yeah. And yeah. they talk a lot about Lilith and a lot of the witches and stuff celebrate her. And I've always taken it. I thought it was always like a pagan demon, like a, sure. a pairing to sure. Lucifer. Yeah. That's so probably, I had never looked this up. But it probably originates in that um, Jewish myth, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's been, you know, redone for whatever purpose. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. don't know if, if and... Lewis actually retcons this, right? Because this, mm -hmm. this is the first book. Um, five mm -hmm. books later in the sixth book, the magician's nephew we find that the white witch is essentially jadis who's a queen from a completely different world mm. and mm -hmm. i don't know if you say that what it means to be human is to be a, a son of adam or a daughter of eve if that is the definition right mm -hmm. then it would seem that jadis is not that because right. she's from a completely different planet Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And on that planet, she basically she um uh ignited an atom bomb that killed everybody. It was basically a magic atom bomb that killed oh everyone. God. Because if she couldn't have that world to herself, no one was gonna have that world. Oh, and then that's when she took over Narnia. No, that's when the magic atom bomb froze everybody, but Part of the oh. spell was that if somebody came in, like, ring a bell or something like that, um, she would oh, be frozen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was, that's how I remember it. I don't remember if that's exactly how it went, but more or that less. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that sounds about right. We get more stereotyping by the beavers, and uh -huh. they're talking about dwarves. Yep. And they're saying dwarves are bad. Uh -huh. And then Mrs. Beaver says, I've known good dwarves, said Mrs. Beaver, Mr. Beaver. So have I, now you come to speak of it, said her husband, <laughs> but precious few. And they were the ones least like men. So I'm guessing the most like, I don't know, animals or something. Maybe the more most like a dwarf. Mm. Um, so so th if this on the spectrum, out... oh, go for it. I was going to say, in the next book, Prince Caspian, 
um, you meet two different kinds of dwarves. One's a red dwarf and the other's a black dwarf. The black dwarf is mm-hmm. evil. The red dwarf is pretty good. Um, or at least he's open to goodness, right? Um, mm-hmm. I forget. So there's Nickabrick, I think, was the bad one. And the good one, I forget his name. But um, yeah. Well, so now that I'm looking at this, the next sentence maybe adds a little more context. It says, in general, take my advice. So this is Lewis's heuristic on determining who's good or bad. Yes. When you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. So it sounds like anything (laughs) that is, anything that would be considered a quote perversion of what a human is. Yes. So I guess that would include a centaur. Well, that would include a mermaid. No, centaurs are pretty much good in um, Lewis's telling, but that might be because they're trying to be centaurs, not trying to be humans. Mm. And so I think part of this, now I'm reading into it, right? But humans in Narnia are the ruling class of creature. Mm-hmm. God said, <clears throat> God, Aslan said, Frank and whatever his wife's name as the first king and queen of Narnia. There there have been no kings or queens for a very long time because of the witch. And we don't really know what happened between Frank and his wife. And when did the witch come in and how long has she been there? But um, it's, they're waiting for four children essentially to be the new kings Mm -hmm. and queens of Narnia. Right. Yeah. And and that is the way it goes. And then that you have Prince Caspian, who is also not from Narnia. He's actually from uh, another world. And mm-hmm. um, he creates, he becomes like the King David, if you will. And his mm-hmm. line is the line that stretches out as kings for the rest of the series. Because it's one of mm. his descendants who is king at the last battle. Mm. But so humans are always in a there's almost never any humans um in in Narnia as it should be um the mm-hmm. time when there's a lot of humans um it's uh Caspian's people and they have basically domesticated Narnia and made mm. it much worse but by the time you get further into the series so book 6 and especially or I'm sorry book 5 in book seven, mm-hmm. I'm trying. I'm doing this chronologically, not, um, mm-hmm. or I'm doing this as they were published. Yeah, it was, no, it would be book four. So the silver chair, it's Narnia is mm-hmm. pretty wild, but you don't spend much time in Narnia. But then in um, uh, book seven, the last battle, Narnia is pretty wild at that point. It it doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. that there are really any settlements of people. Who are Narnia mm-hmm. other mm. than the king. Mm. So it's like a couple of humans and a whole bunch of animals. That's classic Narnia. So yeah. if we take this idea that humans in Narnia are um, creatures that rule over as set up by Aslan in this hierarchy, to have a creature mm-hmm. that seeks to um, rule to make others subservient to it. Um, 
this is the kind of creature you need to watch out for. They are they are mm-hmm. coming out of their defined place in the hierarchy and trying to subsume um, some level of control or an authority over others. Probably mm-hmm. best depicted in the last battle by the ape, um, mm-hmm. who basically becomes a really fat human and has everybody serve him to yeah. the literal detriment of all other creatures. Well, that is going to tie in later to a question that I have, which we don't need to answer now, but I do wonder how the humans get populated in Narnia when the only humans there right now are four siblings, but we'll get to that. They don't have any kids. (laughs) Really? Yeah. There are no children. Oh, they never, I, from what you, from what I can tell, they never get married. Oh, there's, if you read um, A Horse and His Boy. Well, then how do, well, so I don't want to get too sidetracked because we, you know, we have yeah. been spending time um, and I do want to get to chapter nine, but okay. we can talk about that when we get there in probably our next episode. Okay. That's okay. Sure. All right. Okay. Chapter nine. So now we're going to pan over to Edmund. And he has just left the beaver's house without his jacket in a blizzard to get some Turkish delights. Yes. Edmund is intent on selling out his siblings and becoming king. He is confident the witch will be happy enough that he has Aslan's plan and brought the siblings into Narnia. Edmund sees a stone statue of a lion and he decides to graffiti on its face to feel better about how much he hates Aslan. Mm -hmm. And then when Edmund presents his findings to the witch, the witch is not close to pleased by these results and lops him in the bottom of her sled as she goes to torch Mr. Beaver's home. Yes. Yes. I was thinking about the lion that, uh, the stone lion that Edmund sees at the very beginning and he's yes. super afraid. And then he draws the mustache and the spectacles on it. Right. And mm-hmm. he's, he's, I don't know if he, well, I guess he does realize that if the witch can turn creatures to stone, that she's turned Aslan into stone and that this is once a live creature and his response mm-hmm. to seeing dozens, hundreds of creatures turned to stone, right. Mm-hmm. Is like <laughs> graffiti. Um, yeah. Which is kind of like an insane reaction to mass tragedy. Yes. I mean, like Edmund on his, way to the witch is like a girl with a loser boyfriend he sees every red flag and he just blows <laughs> through it oh yeah <laughs> and you're like girly girl what are you doing <laughs> but she said sees, i'll be king yeah she said he said that we'll get married one day <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that is yeah, Edmund sees a lot of red flags and he just keeps going. He's like, oh, the witch's favorite color is red. Wow. No, he, he's an Who idiot. Um, this also was reminiscent of The Hobbit. No, not The Hobbit. Um, Lord of the Rings. When um, the Fellowship comes across three trolls. Um, but mm. they were the three trolls who got turned into stone in The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm. Aragorn is like, well, y'all have forgotten your family history, and I knew it wasn't a troll because one, it's noon, and two, there's a bird's nest in its ear. So, oh. 
This is this is reminiscent of that, right? Where being afraid of something mm-hmm. that's stone, but when you look closely, you realize, oh wait, it's covered in snow and it's not moving. And yeah, exactly. We see a little bit of Edmund's inner turmoil as he's going to the witch's castle, and he's in a lot of discomfort because he's traveling in a blizzard without a coat, and it was. The line is, even as it was, he got wet through. He got wet through for he had to stoop under branches and great loads of snow that came sliding off onto his back. And every time this happened, he thought more and more how he hated Peter. Just as if all of this had been Peter's fault. Yes. He is very spiteful. Yeah. So you could, I can just imagine what his inner dialogue probably is. Like if Peter had listened to me from the beginning and we had gone straight here, we didn't go to the beaver's house then I wouldn't have to be trudging along without my jacket. And it's all his fault. It's probably like what's looping through. Yes. Yes. His mind. And you also see Edmund succumb to a very common psychological fallacy that people tend to do, which is once they start the sunk cost fallacy, once they start, yeah. they yes. feel like they've gone too far. And he's feeling afraid of the house. And he's like, this is a very scary place. And I really shouldn't go here. The line. But it was too late to think of turning back now. Because he probably feels like I've already abandoned my siblings. And I kind of have to go through with this. Yes. Um, In the movie version, it, it's really humorous when the the dwarf comes in and he throws Edmund into uh an ice uh dungeon kind of thing and he mm-hmm. gives him like this really stale bread and he says here are your num nums <laughs> I'm making making fun of him and oh you want you want your cocaine Turkish delight you know um here here's reality yes I think the Disney adaptation is actually pretty good. It's a little too long. Um, and the I think the fight scene is uh, way too violent for the book as it's presented mm-hmm. in the book, right? There's The battle mm-hmm. is not really depicted. It's like three pages. Mm-hmm. But whatever. It was a fun movie. It, it really was a good movie, and it was much better than, I don't know if it was BBC who did the other one. Yes. There was some, like... Yes, the BBC. English one. Yeah, yes. and the girl they picked for Lucy, like, I'm sure she's a perfectly fine-looking person, but they had her looking like a toad yes. that whole time. Yes. <laughs> and the faces she made, I mean, still ingrained in my mind. I should probably watch it again. Um, But we leave off with that chapter, and... Edmund gives the witch the news and she has a cruel smile on her face where she's like, is that it? Is that all your news? When he says, I've got the siblings here. He's like, Aslan's on the move and he's coming. And then she immediately goes from like, I'm going to play with my food of being little Edmund. And she was probably going to turn him into stone or something silly. Mm -hmm. And she's immediately goes into panic mode. And she's like, get the sleigh without the bells. We need to go in incognito to go torch mm-hmm. Mr. Beaver's mm-hmm. house. Yeah. Oh, well, she's deeply frightened as well she should be. Um, yeah. This is, I mean, so Aslan is not, um, there is not a comparable power between the witch and Aslan. And she knows that. 
No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So she knows she's in for a bad time. Um, so she's yep. trying to really make sure that this doesn't come to pass and she gets rid of the children. To me, I feel like the right move would have been to just kill Edmund right then and there, because then they won't have four. They'll only have three. Yes, absolutely. That would have been the smart, that, smart move by the witch. That seems like that would have been the play, but she wants to hang on to Edmund to use him as a bargaining chip somehow to either get the rest of the children or get Aslan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thousand percent. Okay, uh, chapter 10. I didn't write out a full summary for this, so we're just going to wing it. But this is called The Spell Begins to Break. So now that Aslan has returned to Narnia, winter is starting to end and we're starting to see like the um snow melts and now the rivers are getting started and it's like at a very accelerated rate like you could imagine that it was zero degrees outside and now it's 100 degrees outside and mm -hmm. everything is starting to melt very very quickly mm -hmm. which if this were to truly happen i think would cause incredible flooding but we're going to ignore <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> It's getting evaporated as quickly as it's melting. Yeah. And so we jump back to Susan, Peter, and Lucy and the Beavers, and they're starting to pack. And Mrs. Beaver is pulling a Hermione Granger, packing all of the things that are important, while the children don't want to pack anything. She's like, yes. we need food. We need water. She goes a little bit off the rails when she says, I suppose the sewing machine's too heavy to bring. Yes. Which is crazy. And the children are getting like irritated with Mrs. Beaver because they're like, we need to get out of here. And she's spending time packing. And then they hear, I think they hear bells. They hear bells mm. going. And then everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm scared. I'm scared. And then Mr. Beaver says, here's a place where we can hide out because they think it's the witch. And so then he hands them a dark little flask out of which everyone drank something. And it made one cough and sputter a little and stung the throat, but also made you feel deliciously warm after you swallowed it. And everyone went straight to sleep, which if this were a different book or a different movie, <laughs> this is when the children would be murdered. That's <laughs> uh, so true. So then they hear the bells and they're frightened and the beavers go out to see what it is. And they're like, if it's the white witch, we'll just, we'll be really quiet. But then they find out it's Santa Claus. Father Christmas. Father and Christmas. Yeah. So like we said, it has been winter, never Christmas, but now it is Christmas. And in the next couple hours, it's going to be summer. So Father Christmas, he's having to do quadruple time to get everyone their presents. For So Father Christmas is giving out his gifts and the beavers are like, oh my gosh, like, what are you going to do with my gift? Because Mrs. Beaver got a new sewing machine and he's like, don't worry about locks. I can just put it in your house. And I'm thinking their house is burned down. So what are you going to do about that? But I guess he also says that he's going to finish their dam and mend mm -hmm. all the leaks. So he's going to fix it and he's going to put in a new sewing machine for Mrs. Beaver. And then he hands presents to the children who are there. So that means that Edmund does not get a present because he's being a naughty boy. Peter gets a shield and a sword, very appropriate for a man. 
um, Susan gets a bow mm-hmm. and a quiver. And he says, you must use the bow only in great need, he said, for I do not mean for you to fight in the battle. And then he says, it does not easily miss. And when you put this horn to your lips and blow it, then wherever you are, I think help of some kind will come to you. So Susan gets the weapon she's not supposed to use and some defense. And Lucy gets a cordial that Mm -hmm. will pretty much heal anyone. And she gets a dagger. But again, he also does not want her to be in battle. Only Mm -hmm. Peter. So Lucy's like, I want to go to battle. She says, why, sir? I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. That is not the point, he said. But battles are ugly when women fight. And Mm -hmm. now here he suddenly looked less grave. Here's something for the moment for you all. And he just sidesteps that point and gets them breakfast. And that is the end of chapter 10. So you remember how I talked about the um, the one theory that uh, the medieval understanding of the planets is the unifying theme of mm-hmm. the Chronicles? This is mm-hmm. uh, Santa is, if you will, Jove incarnate. Mm. Right? Jupiter. And yes, yes. He is doing everything he needs to do to take care of um, everybody, do right by everybody, and is also Mm -hmm. very kingly in his presence, very jolly. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this, that when they were at the Beavers and they realized Edmund's not there, um, Peter says, by Jove, which... Oh! the, The guy who came up with the theory is like, that's not unintentional that's very intentional mm-hmm. so um i don't know i just thought i've heard that so often and i never knew where it was from that's very that tickles me i like that yeah so uh it's kind of curious that santa claus can't become the king because it seems like he would do quite a good job right but he's also not human he's father christmas Sounds better than human. I know. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, so we're starting to see how the siblings who stuck around on the good side, they're having a great time where they're getting presents and they have warm food and they're getting, you know, donuts and crumpets. Mm-hmm. And we find out with Edmund, he is like in the luggage of the sled bumping around being treated like dirt shouldn't have been a shouldn't have been a jerk to everybody i know edmund he's really getting his comeuppance right now yes okay chapter 11 aslan is nearer so now we pick back up with edmund and he is really hungry because all he got was what did you call it the crusty bread num nums yes All he had were num-nums, which turn out to be stale, moldy bread. So it says, Edmund, meanwhile, had been having a most disappointing time. When the dwarf had gone to get the sledge ready, he expected the witch would start being nice to him, as she Mm -hmm. had their last meeting. This is the point. But she said nothing at all. And when at last Edmund plucked up his courage to say, please, your majesty, could I have some Turkish delight? You you said, and she says, silence, fool. (laughs) And then uh, that's when the dwarf gives him the num-nums instead. 
And so she's like, don't even think about Turkish delights. Like you are not going to be king. It was all a joke. Mm -hmm. You are property now. You are a fool. Mm hmm. Yes. And the witch tells her head wolf Mogram. And she says, take with you the swiftest of your wolves and go at once to the house of the beavers and kill whatever you find there. So she, they're doing a, a split, a split up approach, which Peter had suggested, but not, not in a good way. No. She has some strategy here because the yes. wolves actually know where to go. Yes. And so the wolves are going to go to the beavers, cover that, and then she's going to head to the stone table where they're all meeting up. Mm-hmm. I also love how she terrorizes the animals who are like, yeah, Father Christmas came and gave us presents. (laughs) Yes, I forgot about that. So then they're on their sled, but because winter is ending, sled is not really the mode of transportation you need now. You need something with wheels. Yes. So that gets frustrating for her. And then... She sees she sees the people celebrating Christmas and she gets really mad and mm-hmm. she turns them into stone. She's crazy and evil, but that's who she is. Mm-hmm. And Edmund, he he's starting to realize he's in a bad spot and he tries to stick up for the animals that got turned to stone. And she basically, she slaps him. She gives him a stunning blow on the face. And she said, let that teach you to ask ask for favor for spies and traitors. Mm. And Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. And he felt really bad about those little animals. I think that this is the turning point for Edmund's um, redemption. Mm -hmm. He's finally not thinking about it himself. And so then once they start walking, she's like, you're going to have to tie up Edmund. So he gets tied up and he he's realizing he's 100% a slave. Yes. And he's walking with his hands in front of him and the snow is melting and now it's all slush and he keeps tripping and falling. And then the dwarf starts whipping him, being like, don't do that. And mm-hmm. he's just having a really bad time. And that's pretty much it. That's good. I, I think we did a really successful job getting this far. Do you have time for one more chapter? I don't. I do not. Unfortunately. Okay. That's we're okay. Gonna to, we're going to have to call it here. All right. So this was great. Well, Sam, thank you for meeting up and yeah. talking on this pod. Thanks Did you for listen inviting to the last me. episode? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I noticed you inserted the intro. I'm current on Bookalicious, oh, baby. Yeah. I'm current. Oh, that's good. That's good. You need to tell all your friends because. I was just going to say, I don't think Chrissy's current. Um, I don't even know if she cares anymore, but I do. I, you know what? I feel like I'm doing this podcast all on my own. I was telling Chrissy, I was like, Chrissy, can you pod today? She's like, no, I'm visiting family. I was like, can you not bring your microphone and your computer? And she's like, no, 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 no. I'll be with family. I'm like, look at you with your boundaries and work-life balance. She's a Gen Z. Maybe she's just trying. She's slowly moving away. You need to do a oh breakup God. book. As your next book. Oh my God. No. <laughs> my girlfriend, our number one fan, Anna, who has been promoting this podcast to many people, she was saying that we should just keep doing children's books. That way she doesn't have to read them and she can just listen. That's true. Books that she's already read. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> All right, uh, well, I'll let you go. Dune's coming out, so next year. So if you want to do oh. Dune as a book. That's a book that you read and you realize this dude definitely did acid and mushrooms. Yep. Sounds like a good time. Frank Herbert, I think, is the author. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. All right. We'll love you. Talk to you later. All right. Later. Peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bookalicious. If you like this discussion, please rate or subscribe to our channel to help other book lovers find this content as well. If you have any questions or suggestions for future books, we'd love to hear from you at bookalicious.pod at gmail.com. As always, thanks for joining our club.